Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Lawmakers grilling Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She says a global tax plan will benefit American workers and companies, but some say the opposite will happen. President Biden proposes a new economic partnership between the U.S. and Latin America. Find out why presidents of many Latin American countries decided to boycott the U.S.-hosted Summit of the Americas. The U.S. is losing ground in its backyard, Latin America, while China has been busy making major inroads there through its checkbook. We look at how the dynamics have shifted. Former President Donald Trump and two of his children have agreed to testify in a civil investigation. The agreement comes six months after they were issued subpoenas. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen faced a grilling Wednesday. She told a House panel that a global tax plan would benefit American workers, but not everyone was convinced. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Janet Yellen told lawmakers Wednesday that a global economic group will create a system where corporations will provide revenue benefiting American workers. What it's going to do is stop a global race to the bottom in corporate tax rates. The Organization for Cooperation and Economic Development, or OECD, is headquartered in France. The U.S. is also part of the group. It has a two-part tax plan that represents major changes to international tax rules. It would allow countries to tax some of the earnings of companies located elsewhere that make money through online retailing, web advertising, and other activities. Think big tech. Yellen said it would make U.S. companies more competitive. But the House panel's ranking Republican, Kevin Brady, disagreed. He called the global tax deal an economic surrender. Congress will not ratify an agreement that makes America less competitive, surrenders precious U.S. tax revenues to foreign governments by allowing them to target American businesses. Many countries have agreed to set a minimum global corporate tax rate of 15 percent starting next year. Meanwhile, the OECD is slashing its growth forecast. The OECD's 2022 forecast fell from 4.5% to 3%, with a similar pace expected next year. It pointed to an uneven recovery from the pandemic, disruption from China's zero-COVID policy, and the conflict in Ukraine. The Russian war of aggression against Ukraine uh, is uh, causing a significant surprise shock. It is having a, a significant negative effect on growth, and it is pushing up uh, inflation higher and for longer. Earlier this week, the World Bank also cut its growth estimate. It warned of a potential global recession. We think it's the, the biggest slowdown of the global economy in 80 years. I think many countries will see a recession in this cycle. The European Central Bank Thursday said it plans to increase interest rates in July to fight inflation. It'd be the first time it raised borrowing costs in more than a decade. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. A phenomenon dubbed shrinkflation is sweeping across the globe. Some manufacturers have started offering less of their products in each package they sell without reducing prices amid high inflation. Let's look at what's happening. It's the inflation you're not supposed to see. Edgar Dworsky is a consumer advocate and founder of ConsumerWorld.org. He showed off how companies are shorting consumers. This is Angel Soft toilet paper. Get big numbers right in front. The old one had 425 sheets on a roll, and you may still find this in some stores. The new one, 320. You lost over 100 sheets on every roll. 
From toilet paper to yogurt to corn chips, manufacturers are quietly shrinking package sizes without lowering prices. The practice has been dubbed shrinkflation, and it's accelerating worldwide. Shrinkflation tends to come in waves. When there are periods of high inflation, like we're in now, we see more manufacturers choosing, instead of raising the price, to make the products a little bit smaller. That's kind of a sneaky way of passing on a price increase because they hope most consumers are not going to catch it. Inflation is driving manufacturers to offer less of a product for the same price. Right now, we're in the middle of a wave of inflation, and that means more manufacturers are downsizing more products. Where in normal times, I may only see half a dozen products every three months downsize. Now it's more like a dozen. Paper towels are another example of the many shrinking products on the market. Here, for example, is Sparkle paper towels. The old product was 116 sheets on a roll, nice and big. It states that right on the package. The new one is only 110. In the U.S., a small box of Kleenex now has 60 tissues. A few months ago, it had 65. In the U.K., Nestle slimmed down coffee tins from 3.5 ounces to 3 ounces. Shrinkflation isn't new, experts say, but ramps up in times of high inflation as companies grapple with rising costs for ingredients, packaging, labor, and transportation. A natural gas plant shutdown in Texas is adding to global supply issues. Freeport LNG is the operator of one of the largest U.S. export plants producing liquefied natural gas, or LNG. The company will shut down for at least three weeks following an explosion at its Texas Gulf Coast facility. The shutdown increases the risk of shortages, especially in Europe. Freeport LNG provides about 20% of U.S. LNG processing. It disclosed the shutdown late Wednesday after appraising damage to the facility. A company spokesperson said an investigation into the explosion is underway, but did not discuss the cause of the fire. The market impact of the shutdown has driven European gas prices up. That's as traders fear lost U.S. shipments will stress a market already struggling with reduced Russian supplies. In the wake of a record-breaking Memorial Day weekend, thanks to Top Gun Maverick, movie theaters are facing a new dilemma, popcorn. Experts are worried a popcorn shortage could be around the corner. That's not just because farmers may start growing less corn in favor of more profitable crops. Shortages in other areas that impact theater popcorn are also at play. Suppliers are having trouble getting the lining that's used inside popcorn bags. Everything from those bags to the oil used to pop the corn and the glue used for the boxes that hold that oil are at risk of supply chain issues. Since theaters sell popcorn at a massive markup, they rely on it and other concessions for most of their profit margins. At the Summit of the Americas on Wednesday, President Joe Biden announced plans for a new U.S. economic partnership with Latin America. The proposal is geared towards countering China's growing influence in the region. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has the details. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Despite presidents of many Latin American countries declining to attend, sending their foreign ministers instead, Biden pledged to work with regional partners on global challenges at the Summit of the Americas. We have an opportunity for us to come together around some bold ideas, ambitious actions, and to demonstrate to our people the incredible power of democracies to deliver concrete benefits 
and make life better for everyone. Mexico's president boycotted the summit because Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua were not invited. Presidents of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador also decided to skip the event in protest. With one of the main themes of the summit being democratic governance, Biden said he didn't want to invite dictators. Democracy is under assault around the world. Mexico's foreign minister called the move controversial and inconsistent, if not contradictory. He says it was already discussed and concluded that Cuba should be invited during President Obama's time in office. Biden is looking to offer Latin American countries an alternative to China that will require increased U.S. economic engagement, more investment, and building up existing trade deals. Together, we have to invest in making sure our trade is sustainable and responsible in creating supply chains that are more resilient, more secure, and more sustainable. He calls the plan America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity. Programs include a $300 million food security financing initiative, a partnership to help with access of renewable energy sources, and the training of 500,000 health workers in the Americas over the next five years. One of the core issues being emphasized at the summit is regional migration. Safe and orderly migration is good for all of our economies, including the United States. It can be a catalyst for sustainable growth. But all unlawful migration is not acceptable. We will enforce our borders. Biden says a declaration on migration will be released Friday, but didn't specifically say what it would encompass. He says it will be a groundbreaking, integrated new approach with shared responsibility across the hemisphere. The U.S.-Mexico border is seeing record numbers of illegal immigration. In May, Border Patrol agents apprehended over 7,500 illegal migrants per day, according to Customs and Border Protection. Currently, a large migrant caravan seeking U.S. asylum is traveling through Mexico towards the border. It's made up of thousands of Venezuelan, Cuban, and Central American citizens. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A power shift has been happening in America's backyard while Washington's attention was diverted by Ukraine and the Middle East. We look at how China has been expanding its influence in Latin America and where America's influence stands in the region. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the latest. Latin America has traditionally been considered America's backyard, but the U.S. is losing ground there, while China has been advancing through trade and investment. The U.S. remains Latin America's top trading partner. But if Mexico gets excluded from the picture, then China will have already replaced the U.S. as the top partner to the rest of the region. That's according to a Reuters analysis of U.N. trade data. Excluding Mexico, two-way trade between China and Latin America hit nearly $250 billion last year. In comparison, the region's trade volume with the U.S. stands at just under $175 billion. America is able to keep its top Latin America trading partner status because of Mexico. The two signed a free trade deal in the 90s, and trade volume between the two overshadows Washington's commerce with the rest of Latin America. Last year, Mexico's trade flows with America stood at over $600 billion. Mexico's trade with China reached around $110 billion. In the meantime, China has been promoting its major investment project in Latin America, the Belt and Road Initiative though critics call it Beijing's debt trap diplomacy. Under it, the regime offers billions of dollars in loans to developing countries, earmarked for building up their infrastructure. 
But when countries fail to pay back the money, the regime then takes control of their strategic assets, like ports that could prove useful for military purposes. Over 20 Latin America and Caribbean nations have signed up for China's Belt and Road Initiative. The Biden administration has sent aides to Latin America in an attempt to convince them that the U.S. is a more reliable and transparent business partner. But a U.S. official told Reuters that Washington is facing a tough challenge there. The official said as long as China is ready to put its cash on the table, the U.S. seems to be fighting a losing battle. The official spoke on the condition of anonymity. The Summit of the Americas is currently underway in Los Angeles. The city is home to the largest Latino community in the U.S. President Biden is expected to introduce a new economic agenda for the region while he's there. Though administration officials say it will not include new trade agreements. The new agenda aims to mobilize investments, create clean energy jobs and strengthen supply chains. Any new trade deals could face domestic pushback. Biden promised American voters before that he would not sign any new deals until he's made major investments at home. Former President Donald Trump and two of his adult children, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump, have agreed to testify under oath in a New York State civil investigation into the former president's business practices. The testimony is slated to start July 15th and could last through the following week. That's according to an agreement made with State Attorney General Letitia James. The deal for the Trumps to testify came more than six months after James first issued subpoenas for their testimony, which the Trumps fought in court. Trump and his children argued that testifying in the civil probe would violate their constitutional rights because their words could be used in a related criminal investigation. James says her three-year investigation found evidence that the Trump organization overstated asset values to get favorable loans and understated the values to get tax breaks. Trump has denied wrongdoing and called the investigation politically motivated. Progressive San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin was just ousted after a recall vote. And in Los Angeles County, embattled District Attorney George Gascon is also facing a recall vote due to his soft-on-crime policies. But there's more to the story. NTD's Arlene Richards spoke in-depth with Charles Stimson, a former San Diego prosecutor who has been tracking and reporting on a trend of prosecutors across the country who he says are making cities less safe by sabotaging the rule of law. The voters of Los Angeles County voted him into office as the top law enforcement person in the county, uh, and those same voters now uh, are trying to recall him. That's Charles Stimson, a former San Diego district attorney and a senior fellow at the Edward Meese Legal Center. And he's talking about George Gascon, the current Los Angeles district attorney who is facing a recall vote. These pro-criminal anti-victim policies by Gascon and Boudin and elsewhere are having the inner city residents up in arms and saying, you know what, we, we didn't vote for that. Gascon's office said in an email that they had no comment, but there's more to the story. Stimson co-authored a report with Zach Smith called Progressive Prosecutors Sabotage Rule of Law, Raise Crime Rates and Ignore Victims. He says there's a trend of prosecutors creating policies that are lenient on criminals and that it's a coordinated effort backed by billionaire George Soros. 
Stimson cited the Wall Street Journal, which said that during the 2016 election cycle, Soros contributed at least $3.8 million to political action committees, supporting candidates for district attorney in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Missouri, New Mexico, Texas, and Wisconsin. And he added that this was just a fraction of the money Soros poured into county prosecutor races. The strategy, Stimson said, was to get rid of law and order DAs that didn't toe the line. And so what they did is they looked around at the big city uh, DA offices. They looked, and they were all Democrats, and they looked for um, which one didn't bend a knee to Black Lives Matter and wasn't prosecuting police to the way they wanted police prosecuted. NTD reached out to George Soros for comment, but we did not hear back before broadcast time. However, Stimson's report also cites a law journal symposium in February 2020, where Baltimore prosecutor Marilyn Mosby defined a progressive prosecutor as one who was advocating for social reform and moving away from the tough-on-crime approach because previous practices led to mass incarceration and overcriminalization of black and brown people. Stimson says the movement falsely believes the entire criminal justice system is racist and needs to be dismantled. He said crime is rising in rogue prosecutor states. Crime has exploded in Philadelphia, and crime has been at or on a decline in San Diego all these years. One takes a law and order approach, one takes a pro-criminal approach. According to Philadelphia police statistics, homicides rose from 277 in 2016 to 562 in 2021. And San Diego crime statistics show 50 homicides in 2016 and 56 in 2020. Stimson and Smith are planning to write a book about this movement, which Stimson says actually started in 2013. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Authorities in Mexico have uncovered a tunnel running from Tijuana to the United States. Officials say that it was used for drug trafficking. The tunnel is about 800 feet long and is equipped with rails, lighting, and a ventilation system. According to the Mexican prosecutor's office, the tunnel was concealed by a home in the border city of Tijuana. It's the second tunnel found by Mexican authorities in the same area in less than a month. As security increased along the U.S.-Mexico border in recent years, drug cartels have resorted to boring tunnels. This is especially true in Arizona and California, where geological conditions are favorable. Every year, dozens of drug tunnels are found traversing Mexico's border with the United States. And coming up, we hear about the horrific testimony of a witness who survived the Texas school shooting, and we get some analysis from a former detective on how to prevent tragic shootings. We'll have more for you after the short break. The U.S. House on Wednesday passed a gun control bill that would raise the minimum age from 18 to 21 on purchases of certain firearms. The bill would also make it a federal crime to possess handmade or 3D printed weapons without a serial number. Parts of the bill would also enforce a ban on bump stocks, a weapon modification that increases the fire rate of semi-automatic firearms. The bill is unlikely to overcome the 60-vote filibuster threshold in the Senate. 
Democrats have pushed for the package as necessary in the wake of the Uvalde school shooting that left 19 children and two adults dead. All the while, Republicans in both chambers of Congress have pushed for legislation to address what they say are the root causes of violence, including widespread mental health issues that have affected young people in the aftermath of COVID-19. They also say the bills hurt Second Amendment rights and leave law-abiding citizens less protected by taking away their firearms. The person who created the FBI mass shooting protocol says that she is shocked by the police response to the mass shooting in Uvalde. She admits there have been some trip-ups among police departments in the past when responding to these incidents, but she says police staying on the other side of the wall for an hour is unheard of. Next, we get some analysis from a former law enforcement officer on how to address shootings more broadly. Please welcome Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, who is a retired New Jersey police detective and former military intelligence officer assigned to the FBI National Joint Terrorism Task Force. Thank you for coming on the show, Stephen. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, witnesses who survived the mass shooting at a Texas elementary school in Uvalde testified at a House hearing on gun violence on Wednesday. One of the witnesses was a young student. She even told of having to smear her classmates' blood on herself to make it seem like she was dead. What are some sensible gun reforms that can help prevent this from ever happening again? Well, one thing that the legislators must do is uh, redirect their energies, if you will, from gun control to crime control. Uh, I have found that most people involved in these shootings are career criminals. And look, it's a tragedy what occurred, and it is always a tragedy. Uh, when people are gunned down by an active shooter. But what they're not talking about, and what I mean by they are legislators, is what's happening every single day in Chicago. I mean, the death toll in Chicago every week is like a body count during the Vietnam War. We have San Francisco, L.A., now New York. Uh, These individuals are career criminals that have been released as a result of the Democrats' uh, policies of crime reform. So the first thing you got to do is have real crime reform, Keep people who commit crimes, especially violent crimes, behind bars. That is the first step that you take to fight this gun violence. And what are some next steps for law enforcement in schools across the country? Well, to begin with, we have to fund the police, not defund the police, and fund them to the point uh, where we're going to look at proactive policing methodologies as well as reactive. So let's talk about proactive for a minute. Uh, We have to start to get cops back on the streets via community policing. When police officers are walking the streets of every neighborhood of every city and state in this country, they're able to gather a lot of intelligence and information from people in that neighborhood. Why? Because the cops are now friendly with the people and the people begin to trust the police. Right now, there is no trust of the police because there's no trust of the government. So there's one of your uh, most important proactive uh, methodologies. In addition to that, police need the funds and the capabilities to interact with mental health therapists in the communities and in the schools. They've got to work together. And I also include our clergy of the uh, uh, religious institutions across our country. They need to be engaged. That's proactive. Reactive, they need the funding to get the uh, hardware, if you will, the weapons, if you will, the material that they need in order to take down a shooter immediately where there is no delay. And what advice do you have for parents as the nation grapples with this problem of school shootings? Well, to begin with, they need to get involved. They need to get involved and run for school boards, uh, to sit on school boards, to go to school board meetings, and they need to let the uh, people who are running their schools know that they need better security. I have always been in favor of police officers 
in the schools, armed cops in the schools. Not that they're there uh, looking like stormtroopers, but we did it here in New Jersey and in, in the community I worked in. I assigned police officers under an adopt a cop program to walk the hallways, have lunch with the kids, be friendly with them. Listen, the only way you're going to stop a, a bad guy with a gun is make sure you have a good guy with a gun. And that good guy could be the police. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, thank you so much for your input on this. Oh, thank you. A school district in New Jersey has approved hiring off-duty police and retired officers to patrol inside school buildings. The guards will be armed and present through at least the end of the upcoming academic year. NJ.com reports the Middletown School District is the latest to approve the policy. The measure was unanimously passed in the wake of the Uvalde school shooting. An off-duty police officer will be placed at each of the district's 16 schools through the end of the school year. For the upcoming school year, certain retired law enforcement officers will be assigned to each school. A parent whose children attend a school in the district told Fox & Friends First that parents have rallied around the idea of having armed guards inside schools. She said she hasn't met anyone who disagrees with the new policy. The head of a Mexico-based megachurch with 5 million followers worldwide was sentenced in a Los Angeles courtroom to over 16 years in prison for sexually abusing three girls. The head of a megachurch based in Mexico, La Luz del Mundo, has been sentenced to nearly 17 years in prison for sexually abusing young girls. Nason Joaquin Garcia is the leader and self-styled apostle of the Guadalajara-based church, which claims nearly 5 million followers worldwide. He pleaded guilty to two counts of abuse last Friday, in return for prosecutors dismissing the majority of the charges he faced, including multiple charges of rape, conspiracy to engage in human trafficking, and child pornography. Judge Ronald Cohen was visibly emotional when he handed down the jail sentence in Los Angeles on Wednesday, apologizing for not being able to do more for the victims. Lawyers do what lawyers do, and at this point my hands are tied. But I further want to tell all the Jane Doe's that the world has heard you. Garcia's sentencing caps an investigation that began in 2018, leading to his arrest the following year at Los Angeles International Airport. But Garcia's accusers have decried the plea deal as too lenient. One of Garcia's alleged victims, Sochil Martin, vowed to keep fighting for justice. This is just getting started. LDM and your criminal institution and every politician, whether it's here, Colombia, Mexico, Europe, we're taking this to the federal authorities. If it's the last thing I do. Two other church associates charged with Garcia have reached separate plea deals, while a fourth person remains at large. La Luz del Mundo has publicly stood by Garcia and argued that he accepted a plea deal because he believed he could not get a fair trial. Under the deal, Garcia will also be registered as a sex offender for life. An Arizona man convicted of murdering an eight-year-old girl in 1984 was put to death. It's the state's second execution since officials resumed carrying out the death penalty in May following a nearly eight-year hiatus. He was able to have the priest inside the execution room with him. Uh, that is a first for the, uh, for the state. Uh, the priest stayed with him uh, through the entire process. For decades, it would be fair to say that the criminal justice system failed Vicky's family. That changed today. This process is finally over, but it's over without an apology, without any semblance of remorse, and without accepting responsibility. 
1984, Vicki Lynn Hoskinson went missing after leaving her home in Tucson to drop a birthday card in a nearby mailbox. Authorities say Frank Atwood kidnapped Vicki. Her remains were discovered in a desert nearly seven months after her disappearance. Experts could not determine the cause of death. Arizona has halted executions for years. Some blame the halt on two things. One is the difficulty of obtaining lethal injection drugs, and the other is criticism that a 2014 execution in the state was botched. Death penalty opponents worry that Arizona will now start executing a steady stream of prisoners who have languished on death row, but no other executions have been scheduled. Police are still searching for one suspect in connection to Saturday night's shooting in Philadelphia. Two people plus a gunman were killed and 11 more were wounded in the shooting that police say started as a fistfight. Police say at least four guns were involved. Two men have already been arrested and charged with multiple offenses. Police have released these photos of the final suspect they believe to be involved. He should be considered armed and dangerous. There is a $20,000 reward for information that leads to his arrest and conviction. State police officials say three people were killed after at least a dozen vehicles collided along heavily traveled Interstate 30 in southwestern Arkansas. The Arkansas Department of Transportation said the crashes happened just before 2.30 Wednesday afternoon. That was in the eastbound lanes of the interstate about 50 miles southwest of Little Rock. Arkansas State Police reported multiple fatalities about an hour later, but troopers still hadn't accounted for all of the motorists involved. An Arkansas Department of Transportation camera was about three miles from the crash site. It shows black smoke billowing in the distance as traffic creeps forward. Traffic was so paralyzed that state workers distributed snacks and water to stranded motorists. Westbound traffic on the highway was still blocked this morning. At least four people are dead after a U.S. Marine Corps aircraft crashed in Southern California on Wednesday. The aircraft was an MV-22B Osprey belonging to the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing. The aircraft went down in Southern California during a training exercise. A spokesman for the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing could not confirm the number of people on board or whether there were any deaths. He said information was still being gathered. However, a reporter from Fox 5 San Diego said that according to radio chatter, at least four people are dead and rescue teams are searching for a fifth person who remains unaccounted for. Military officials today have yet to release official word on the fate of five Marines. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, researchers are working to support the vast number of young caregivers in the United States. These kids have to help care for ailing family members at an early age. And a man who used to be a drug dealer transforms his life and becomes a master falconer. It all started 30 years ago at an environmental conservation project in Washington, D.C. Find out more right here on NTD News. A large group of young Americans at an early age share the burden of family care. They have to help adult family members suffering from serious health problems. Researchers say these kids need more support. 
11-year-old Ronan Kotia and his 9-year-old brother Keaton share the same hobbies as kids their age. I like sports. Um, I'm not a big painting fan, but I do like drawing and all the other art. I really like Harry Potter. They also help their mother care for a bedridden father. He was diagnosed in 2014 with ALS, a fatal disease that stripped him of the ability to speak and walk. Most of the memory I've had is my dad has ALS. Um, I don't think I've had any. Um, I only have memories of him not having ALS from just looking at pictures we have. The brothers began helping a few years ago. Their father can only breathe with the aid of a ventilator. He expresses himself using eye tracking software on a tablet. I can like suction his mouth. I do like help put him in bed, get him out of bed, put him um, in the bathroom. We just had to get them to help because you know there's days of the week where there's no help and it's I'm physically as, as strong as I am. Some of those things you just need two people for. And so, you know, the boys really just stepped up. According to researcher Melinda Cavanaugh, a surprising number of children in the United States are providing some kind of care at home. There's no way there's less than 10 million children in this country providing care, if not more. And they exist in the shadows because, because we don't look at a child and say, oh, maybe they're providing care. These children help cancer patients, veterans, seniors with heart disease, or siblings with autism. Some of them are the patient's only caregivers, while others fill in the gaps when visiting nurses are not available. To support these kids, Kavanaugh launched a program called YCARE. It provides them with expert-taught training courses and a chance to interact with other peers. So what we do today is we bring kids together and we give them the opportunity to learn hands-on from a multidisciplinary group of professionals. According to the researchers, young caregivers will increase in the U.S. as the population ages, and chronic health problems like diabetes get more prevalent. A man who was once a drug dealer on the streets of Washington, D.C., has been able to transform his life and become a master falconer, and he thanks the healing power of wildlife for his transition. Let's take a look. In his 20s, Rondi Stotts was a drug dealer living in one of D.C.'s roughest neighborhoods. Now the 51-year-old has earned the designation of Master Falconer, and the transformation all started with an environmental conservation project in 1992. You hear all this in the background, in the back of your head, and, and all these animal noises that you know you got to take care of so you can't go out here and do the stupid stuff that you were going to go do because that's your responsibility. Hollywood filmmaker and conservationist Bob Nixon led the initiative to clean up the heavily polluted Anacostia River and hired nine young people from a nearby public housing community to help him, including Stotts. Uh, so it's been a great lesson for a lot of people that, you know, how the, the talent and dedication that these young men and women from Rodney's Corps on these 30 years has been quite astonishing. They've really inspired the movement that has restored the Anacostia River. For the next several years, Stotts helped clear out trash and restore bird populations. Over time, Stotts found himself drawn more toward nurturing birds than dealing drugs. In 2002, he decided to give up selling drugs for good. Here is his advice. I tell people, go to a creek and just sit and listen to the water. For 10 minutes, turn your phone off, everything. just sit there. Watch how you feel when you walk away. When you heard birds actually singing to each other and sitting there like, what? And I miss this. That old saying, stop and smell the roses. Stop. Actually stop and smell them. He says the more he moved away from his old lifestyle, the happier he seemed to get. 
And his mother and people around him were also happy. In his new memoir, Bird Brother, Stotts credits the healing power of wildlife for transforming his life. Coming up, the U.S. Army presents unmanned systems at an exercise in Germany. It includes robotic combat vehicles equipped with weapons and a drone and a military vehicle convoy that trucks with trucks that are steered autonomously. Stay tuned for more after the short break. The UN Refugee Agency says more than 7 million people have crossed the border from Ukraine since the war broke out. Many of them have also fled Europe. Drone footage from the start of the conflict shows lines of cars filled with Ukrainians trying to escape the violence. The agency says the number of refugees from Ukraine recorded across Europe stood at almost 5 million. Poland, Russia, and Moldova are among the top host countries. Most who have fled are women, children, and the elderly. Ukrainian authorities are preventing men under the age of 60 from leaving. Another UN organization says that even for those who stayed in Ukraine, 8 million of them are displaced internally. As the war drags on, it is unclear when the refugees might return or what shape their homes will be in, so the need for longer-term housing is growing. Russia's Ministry of Defense released footage of Russian naval vessels carrying out what the ministry said were planned operational drills in the Baltic Sea near Russia's Kaliningrad region. The ministry said naval tactical groups of Russia's Baltic fleet had deployed in designated areas. The fleet's press service says they're using corvettes, patrol boats, missile boats, frigates, minesweepers, landing craft, and speedboats. The Russian Navy drills come as NATO countries conduct the Baltops 22 naval drills in the Baltic region from June 5th to the 17th. According to a NATO statement, the drills have 14 NATO allies, plus Sweden and Finland taking part. The U.S. Army is presenting its unmanned robotic vehicles during a multinational military exercise in Germany. The technology can help the service members in many ways and even reduce the risk to their lives. Let's take a look. During a military exercise at the Joint Multinational Readiness Center in Germany on Wednesday, the U.S. Army presented a so-called robotic combat vehicle. It's equipped with weapons and a drone. So this right here is Project Origin's uh, autonomous uh, weaponized platform for military usage of reconnaissance, assault, or probing, or a litany of other experimental options right now to be fielded in the Army to either assist with uh, the ground force or to do long-range reconnaissance uh, through different means. Sergeant First Class Joshua De Palma, who is a scout platoon sergeant, explains how this robotic combat vehicle can help his platoon in military operations in real life. When I go out there and have a six-man reconnaissance team out in the field, uh, if we have known likely or suspected enemy within a couple kilometers, instead of sacrificing all four of my men initially, I can, or six of my men out there, I can send this up front first, do the probing, get the positive identification of other tanks, is it uh, dismounted personnel, whatever the threat is, we can launch the UAS, we can get better situational awareness on the ground before I commit my soldiers to the fight. And there is also another technology that makes it easy for military vehicles to follow one another. So what we have here is a kit that goes onto an existing truck. And then as that first vehicle is driven by humans, the other vehicles can reproduce the path robotically. The unmanned vehicles were operated as part of a U.S. Army Europe and Africa exercise series named Combined Resolve 17. This event is designed to evaluate and assess 
1st Armored Brigade combat team's uh, capabilities and conduct operations in a complex and multi-domain simulated battle space. Uh, the focus of this rotation is to exercise combined arms operations in a multinational environment. The exercise series began on May 20th and will last until June 19th. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, one of the largest model railways in Europe makes its debut in Florence, Italy. It features a unique landscape that blends imagination with reality. And a research group in Spain develops a way to reuse mussel shells as ceramic. It's part of a worldwide effort to turn food waste into raw material. All that and more after this short break. NASA says the giant mirror on the James Webb Space Telescope was hit by a micrometeoroid. The impact on one of the 18 golden segments happened between May 23rd and 25th. NASA says the telescope is still performing as normal. A team is now looking at ways to mitigate any future micrometeoroid hits at this scale. The telescope is orbiting about a million miles from Earth where dust particles move at extreme velocities. Webb was launched in December. NASA says it's still on track to share its first high-resolution, full-color images on July 12th. A giant model railroad greets visitors in Florence, and even though it's a miniature model, it takes travelers through the iconic landscapes of Germany, Austria, and Italy. Clanking through tunnels, train stations, and rolling greenery, these miniature trains are taking a scenic journey. This elaborate installation was the brainchild of an Italian whose work started in 1972. The model was born from a passion my father had for cars and model cars. But then in the shop where he had gone to buy a model car, he couldn't find any cars. So the shopkeeper managed to instill in him a passion and curiosity for trains. And that's where his passion started. The model is a real work in progress. It's continuously updated. The space in which it's set mixes reality and imagination. Now it includes the contours of the Dolomites, Berlin-style architecture, and the seascapes of the Tuscan Islands. Actually, the extraordinary thing is that it doesn't represent anything. It is a big dream, and as such it captures the attention. When we close our eyes and dream, we go into another dimension and are often happy. Then we open them again and realize that we have experienced something exceptional that remains within us, but has no correspondence with reality. As the train moves between the landscapes of mountains and the sea, the alternation of lights, music, and projections simulates the change from day to night into different seasons. We thought of two important elements that are linked to vision and listening, and we soundproofed the environment and animated the backgrounds with illustrations that became a 30-minute show that brings back this imaginative and imaginary element of the model. The model railway is thought to be one of the largest in Europe, covering more than 3,000 square feet. It's currently housed in a former cinema in Florence, just a short walk from Santa Maria Novella train station. Over a billion tons of food end up thrown away every year worldwide, but tech gurus in Spain are finding ways to turn even inedible food waste into something useful. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. The key material here is mussels. These little shells are usually discarded, 
but a research group called 1C Circular Design Hub in Spain has developed a way to reuse the waste product. The shells have to be ground down into a fine powder and added to other components to form a paste. We as a society, we produce a lot, a lot of waste related to the ocean, like, uh, like mussels, mussel shells. So with this we create powder and then with this powder we can transform it into a kind of ceramic. In 2019, more than 1 billion tons of food was thrown away across the world. That's based on data from the UN. Tech experts at 1C Circular Design Hub are trying to find ways to stop all that waste from ending up in the trash. We think waste doesn't exist. It's a lack of creativity of, of our civilization. Those are molecules that has another price and another value in different markets. So it's a kind of a different view we have to do on on the materials now we are creating. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, Europe consumes more than 600,000 tons of mussels a year. That's a lot of shells that end up in landfill. The Barcelona-based group believes this is one way of reusing that byproduct and says it could help companies save money as production costs rise. On the price on the raw materials, it grow up from 26% to 300% this year. So that means that it's much more expensive to buy raw materials. We can find these raw materials in the, in the waste we create in the society. No? So there's no waste, as we told, it's like just materials. The hub showcased its ideas at the Food for Future Food Technology Expo in Bilbao. It also has plans for reusing plastic packaging, discarded eggshells, and even peach pits. The UN wants to cut food waste in half by 2030. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead, a project is trying to preserve the caribou population in British Columbia Canabou, Canada. The animal has been in decline across North America. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Spanish park rangers have found an injured bear and her cub alive deep in their burrow. That's after the female suffered a terrible fall from a cliff while the male bear that attacked her died. Video footage shows the female bear in a fight with a bigger male on the edge of a mountain cliff. The two bears then fall from a great height onto the rocks below. The male's body rolled a long way downhill and remained motionless while the disoriented female limped away from the site where she landed. After a two-day search in the mountains, park rangers found the female bear's burrow. They then left fruit and water for the bear and her cub. It's not uncommon for male bears to attack females with cubs during the mating season. There are about 400 bears living in the Spanish mountains, most of them in the north, according to a local bear protection group. Across North America, the caribou population is in decline. Now two First Nations in British Columbia, Canada, are doing something about it, one calf at a time. Let's take a look. The West Moberly and Salto First Nations in British Columbia have created a sanctuary for mountain caribou from the endangered Clinsaiza herd. The population has grown to roughly triple its size outside Fort St. John, British Columbia. The last two years, the calves that we released into the wild they weren't just eaten by wolves and bears, they've actually survived and they're still here. And some of them are actually in here right now reproducing, which is amazing. According to National Geographic, the caribou population is declining from Arctic Alaska, the Northwest Territories, the Quebec forests, and the mountains of British Columbia. Star Gaultier, who's one of the guardians taking care of the animals, says she's happy to put her money towards the animals. 
now I'm actually putting it towards those animals and those little baby calves and into the trees and you know the airy breathe and and just this habitat to be able to preserve it and be part of it directly um, is like the most gratifying thing and it makes the job like not even a job really it's an opportunity. National Geographic reported that when the project began in 2013, only 38 Klinseza caribou remained. Now that herd has tripled to 114. It's a feat that hasn't been achieved anywhere else. Understanding how the brain reacts to sugar can help us resist it. Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Did you know that children do not develop a taste for salt until four months of age? But our taste for sweets happens the minute we are born. Sugar is seductive. Scientists have recently revealed through brain scans that when we eat sugar, our brain lights up similar to when we ingest strong drugs such as cocaine. Many mind-altering substances overactivate the dopamine reward system. Examples include Oxycontin, ecstasy, heroin, alcohol and marijuana. Dopamine, our major reward hormone, tells us things like great job, do it again, you're successful, you are awesome. It's released when we do things we enjoy such as getting together with friends, winning an award, being successful at work and so on. It's also released when we consume sugar. Sugar elicits the greatest dopamine response of any food on the planet. This is fascinating when compared to the response of other notably pleasurable foods that do not stand a chance at holding our attention. I wish that broccoli would generate the same reward response, but it just doesn't. Compared to the response elicited by refined sugar, your reward center simply gets bored with healthy food. Sugar is addictive because we never get tired of being rewarded. And as the reward lessens with each hit, we chase it more and more. Let's take chocolate cake as an example, one we can all relate to. It's so joyful that your reward center is screaming, yes, that's a great idea, do it again. But there's an old saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. This means that the more often you run a neural circuit in your brain, the stronger that circuit relationship becomes. If you continue to chase dopamine with sugar and combine that behavior with other pleasures, it may lead to trouble. This stacking of multiple rewards that feels good in the moment may create long-term negative health effects. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Mm -hmm.